0: everybody, and welcome to this very special episode of Bavarian Podcast Works. Uh, It's our very first interview with anybody we have ever done, and this is a real treat. Our first special guest is a longtime veteran of broadcasting football and soccer internationally, specifically with the Bundesliga. If you're an American, you'll hear him on Fox Sports covering the Bundesliga from time to time. If you live overseas, you can hear his voice calling the NFL on Amazon. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome uh, one of my favorite Scotsmen of all time, Derek Ray on the podcast. Derek, how are you doing today?
1: I'm very well, thanks, and uh, also thanks for that wonderful introduction. Uh, Looking forward to our conversation.
0: We've been planning this one for a while, and we're very glad and I'm very excited that this has finally uh, come to fruition, and it's actually come to happen. So, of course, we're going to start off our conversation by focusing on this Bundesliga season so far. It's been a topsy-turvy season with a lot of lead changes, and everything uh, has been Going not according to plan, not just from a Bayern Munich standpoint, but from what almost everyone had predicted coming into this season. So, Derek, I'm just going to start off by asking what surprised you so far? I
1: think pretty much everything has surprised me so far it hasn't really gone to plan at all in terms of the script that we might have imagined before a ball was kicked in anger. And I'll tell you what, this reminds me a lot of my early days watching the Bundesliga. And for me, the early days were back in the 1980s. And yes, in those days, Bayern were always the favourites going into any season, but there was a lot more competition. In fact, it wasn't unusual to sometimes... Um, see teams come from nowhere and actually win the Bundesliga. It wasn't a surprise to see Bayern lose uh, games against lesser lights. And, you know, that was the era of Köln doing very well uh, in the upper reaches of the table. Stuttgart were always there. And in the equation, Borussia Dortmund likewise. But it was almost a sort of a revolving door. And what we've seen this season, has been nothing short of remarkable. And I've loved every minute of it. Uh, as a commentator and as somebody who uh, adores the Bundesliga and the unpredictability of it all has been marvelous. Now uh, you could possibly argue that the quality is not top notch. I think it's still pretty high. um, But the fact that they're all beating each other might eat into that argument a little bit. Um, I've just loved it. And um, you know, long may it continue. I do suspect that as time goes on, it will Um, go more according to the form book. I have picked Bayern to win the title again. Uh, That was my prediction at the start of the season. I stand by that, but let's hope it continues to be interesting along the way.
0: Has there been a team that has specifically impressed you so far with this uh, very weird start to the season?
1: Yes, I probably would have to mention Bayer Leverkusen because I think they're at a very interesting stage of their development under Peter Boss, a man who, of course, uh, walked into the Dortmund job and had success for a few weeks and then miserable failure for a few weeks and promptly lost his job there. Um, There is something exciting about his brand of football, and it does seem to be a very good fit for Bayer Leverkusen. I I picked them to be in the top four, Uh, And of course, at the moment, they're right up there with the best, although Gladbach and Wolfsburg are overshadowing everyone right now. Who saw that coming? But I, I think Leverkusen are an interesting team, uh, at an interesting time, they have in Kai Habitz, uh, you know, one of the top talents in Europe. Kevin Farlante is a player who I've admired for a long time, just based on his overall game, not just his goal scoring, but as an all-round footballer. And um, I, I just like where they are, and I like the fact that they have a coach who seems to fit them. I remember when Holger Schmidt was in charge a few years ago, I liked what he did with Leverkusen too, but it almost seemed to me that they were exhausted by... Um, you know, the, the, the March point or April point in any season. And um, with Boss, it, it's different. It's, it's a, a lot more um, attack-minded uh, w- without the, the sort of the, the obsession with, with the pressing game that, that Holger Schmidt had. And um, yeah, I think Bayer Leverkusen, uh, certainly there, you probably have to talk about Gladbach and Wolfsburg, although we'll see if that continues once they are tested more.
0: One of the more interesting stories at the beginning of the season was RB Leipzig and how they absolutely took off and dominated the table. Now we... Don't necessarily see that we saw them slip from the top spot down to fourth place behind Bayern Munich, Wolfsburg and Mönchengladbach, as you had mentioned. What do you make of them this season and what do you make, I guess, of the Timo Werner situation with him wanting to potentially, rumored at least, come to Bayern Munich and now Nagelsmann has come in and really taken them to a new height?
1: Well, I was very lucky to be in Leipzig just a few weeks ago for the visit of Bayern, and I think that probably goes down, certainly for me, as the best-played game that we've had in the Bundesliga this season. I thought the level was particularly high on that um, uh, evening in Leipzig. And I think Julian man is a fascinating guy, and I think he is very shrewd as well. And I think going to Leipzig at this point in his career is... Um, was the right move. I I think that he's the right person for that team. And I think he can take them um, to, to an even higher level based on the principles of the club. A lot of people talk about Leipzig in disparaging terms, but they're referring more to the, the whole sort of marketing ethos and the the commercial entity that they are uh, under a, a much bigger commercial entity. But if you concentrate purely on the football, I think what they do there has a lot to say for itself. and, Um, I think the the style of football is very Um, eye-catching. In their DNA, it is all about the the high press that I was referring to earlier. But I think Nagelsmann will try, has already tried to develop that and make them a bit more rounded. Um, So I think that uh, they are here to stay in the conversation when it comes to honours in German football uh, and also uh, on the European front. So I think that they have been an enrichment football-wise, uh, I, I would certainly not shy away from saying that. And I think Karl-Heinz you used those exact words very recently before that uh, game against Bayern to describe them. Uh, on Timo Werner, um, I think, again, it's an interesting one. I, I've thought for quite some time that he would eventually be a Bayern player. I'm quite convinced at some point that will happen. But I think for his development, you know, uh, he's in a good place. And I think uh, it might stand him in good stead to be there for um, a couple more years. Of course, they extended the contract just before the end of the transfer window. Uh, But what uh, the future holds for him in the short term, we'll see, Uh, you know, Bayern continue to excel with Robert Lewandowski, but uh, not an awful lot of um, options in terms of if Lewandowski were ever to be injured. Uh, But, um, yeah, I I would still imagine that that someday we'll see Werner wearing the colours of Bayern, but uh, I I think that with Leipzig and with Nagelsmann and in that environment he'll continue to produce.
0: Moving from incoming transfers potentially to Bayern to outgoing transfers, this wasn't something that I had prepared for this mm. interview. This has just been blowing up recently. The whole debacle over whether or not Thomas Müller will leave Bayern Munich, whether it's in the winter, whether it's in the summer. Uh, A couple of us here, at least on the podcast, have a strong belief, myself included, that there is some way to have Müller break into that top 11, and that we're not sure whether or not Niko Kovac has found that combination yet. But I personally think that there is a way to get him out onto that field. So I guess this is a two-part question. One, do you think Müller ends up leaving either in the winter or in this summer? And two, do you think there is a way to have him break into that top 11?
1: Well, so answer the second part of that question first. I'm not sure that there's a way for Thomas Müller to be a first-choice player under this what you might call preferred setup of Niko Kovac. Uh, But that's not to say that Thomas Müller can't be an important squad player. And I think, you know, we're still talking at a time when we're early in the season and all the competitions haven't properly taken hold. Once we get to a point where, uh, you know, you do need to rotate a lot more, I I think Müller will get more game time. I just think it's difficult at the moment when you look at what the, the ideal first 11 is for Bayern. And you look at the way that Niko Kovac wants to play, um, you know, there's not an obvious fit of a position for Thomas Müller. Uh, you know, he, he's, he's never going to be the ideal player uh, to be you know, wide on the right. Um, and obviously, uh, in terms of the wide positions, you're looking currently at Serge Gnabry and Kingsley Coman. So, um, but having said that, there will be other games where you need to rest these players and somebody like Thomas Müller can come in. Obviously, Coutinho is part of this discussion as well now because Coutinho is there to play. He's not there to sit on the sidelines. And I think he has um, helped Bayern in the short time he's been at the club and will continue to do so. Um, I just think there's always a role for an experienced player. Now, whether Thomas Müller is happy to handle that at this stage of his career, um, we'll see. I mean, he's, he's in there with the fixtures and fittings. I can't really... Imagine Bayern nowadays without Thomas Müller, and I've always thought he's the sort of person who uh, really fits the club the club like a glove, and someday will ascend to a, a, a position um, off the pitch within the club uh, of some import. And you know that's something that Bayern have done for decades, uh, not just at the the obvious you know highest level of all with Uli Hoeness and Karl Heinz Rummenigge and Oliver Kahn, of course, to come in time. Um, you know, but also you know, even further down the, the pecking order, so to speak. And I've always felt that Thomas Müller is one of these players. It's hard to imagine him really wearing the colours of any other club. So I think that it needs a bit of time just to sort itself out. And you know, how Coutinho is going to play exactly where we've seen, you know, so far where he's best. And and I say Bayern didn't sign him to to not accommodate um, Coutinho in his best position. So I, I think that there is a way. I think it we we need to just be a little bit patient and you know get the early rounds of the day of Bepo out of the way the, the group stage of the champions league and and see where everything is set up at that point but for me um thomas muller stays in bavaria
0: i i've never thought of a of a better player that has embodied the club's idea of uh, miasan mia than thomas muller and it would be very I'm I'm in complete agreement that it would be very weird to see him wearing anything other than Bavarian red and white. Going on a similar uh going off of something that you had mentioned, Philippe Coutinho. He's come in and he's had a really interesting start to the season. He's helped to contribute to build up execution in the final third and In cases, scoring goals and helping Robert Lewandowski perform to his best ability. What have you made of him so far and his loan spell? And do you think Bayern may look to Barcelona to potentially bring him in full time?
1: Well, it's early days, but uh, I've liked a lot what I've seen from Coutinho. Um, I uh, thought in that game against Kern uh, at home, when, of course, he scored the penalty, Lewandowski very generously stood aside to allow... Coutinho to net for the first time wearing the colours of Bayern, first time in the Bundesliga and, of course, at home uh, right in front of the Südkurve. Uh, I've thought since that game um, that, yeah, you know, here's a player who, who does look as though he belongs at Bayern and looks excited to be there. And I think that's important, you know, because we've seen many a player over the years arrive at Bayern. And and maybe then disappear from the scene a year or so later, and you thought, okay, that's a good player, but it, but not a buy-in player. When I look at Coutinho, I think there is a buy-in player. There is somebody who sort of gets it, and and almost still, even though it's not early in his career, uh, almost still has some sort of point to prove, and that maybe is born of the fact that. Uh, life for him at Barcelona was a bit frustrating in comparison with uh, Liverpool prior to that. Um, so I think that you know, as a number ten, and that's how I see Coutinho. I know he can play wide, but I see him as a number ten, and I see that that Bayern have wanted to play in this manner, really with a with a a ten, with a playmaking type, with two wide men, with Lewandowski, and then two more covering type of players behind. Um, the playmaker, who is Coutinho. Um, so, so, so analyzing all that, I, I feel that, that Bayern are, are, are very well off with Coutinho. I think that the Bundesliga is better off with Coutinho. And it would not be a great surprise if after this year is done, that there are talks with a view to extending that tie.
0: There's been a lot of discussion in our community, in our blog community, in the Bayern community as a whole, about uh, replacements for Niko Kovac, I'm, I've always held the opinion that I don't believe that there's a reason to fire Niko Kovac until he gives the uh, the fans a reason to. I mean, he's not a big name, but at the same time, he's also done pretty well in his first season and in his second season. What do you think of his performance so far, and what do you think of some of the fans in Bavaria trying to get him out of there and trying to find a big name replacement for him.
1: You know what? I feel a bit sorry for Nikko Kovac because I think he walked into a a bit of a no-win situation. Um, You know, we're in this run, this cycle where, you know, a a young person growing up who's maybe discovered the Bundesliga in the last few years only knows Bayern winning the, the title. And so that's the minimum that's expected. And I think last season was maybe quite a difficult one for him because uh, there wasn't necessarily a, a style of play that was established that you would have said that is the Niko Kovac style of play. He's put his his mark on the team. Um, but maybe that wasn't what was called for straight away. Maybe it was about stability, uh, about, you know, again, winning the Bundesliga, winning the DFB Pokal as he did. And really, if you win those two t- two trophies, I'm not sure what more you're really expected to do. Um, yes, the Champions League was a disappointment to go out as early as Bayern did, but that can happen to any team in any year. So I think, um, OK, this season we're talking as they've lost to Hoffenheim at home and people will say that shouldn't really happen, but it can happen. And it's been a very strange start to the season for all concerns. So it's far too early for anyone to to be talking about, um, you know, failure and about changing the coach. And of course, you've all, always got to remember that Bayern will only change the coach if there's an obvious successor, they're not the kind of club who're going to say, okay, we're fed up with Kovac now, um, so we'll change it. You know, a couple of years ago, when it wasn't going so well with Ancelotti, they did have waiting in the wings, albeit on a caretaker basis, um, And you know, right now there's not a Yuphankers type figure who you can parachute in. And if you're talking about the very best German coaches or even the very best coaches full stop, um, you know, who would you bring in? I mean, I, I saw Jose Mourinho in one of the English papers linked with the job recently. And I thought to myself, that just doesn't To come back to this word that I quite like a lot. That just doesn't fit for me anyway. Um, Jose Mourinho's personality and his style of play. Uh, plus the fact he's not worked in Germany, to me, would, would all count against him over somebody like Niko Kovac, who, OK, is technically Croatian, but he's effectively a Berliner and he does know Bayern. He played for the club, um, but also he's he's worked his passage, if you like, at Eintracht Frankfurt and beaten Bayern, no less, in the DRB Pokal Finale. So I, I think, um, you know, the benefit of the doubt has got to go to Kovac at the moment. And um, yeah, you know, there'll be ups and downs along the way, but Two trophies in his first season and, you know, give him time in a second to see what he can do with a squad that I think has been improved.
0: So to wrap up the Bundesliga section of this interview, you kind of hinted at it before. But uh, do you think Bayern will be able to stay on top of the league at the end of the season? And I guess other than that, how do you think they'll fare in the Pokal, in the Champions League in other competitions?
1: As I said, I think Bayern will be uh, champions again. Uh, I, I would expect that a number of teams will do their best to run them close. And at the moment, everybody's a bit down on Borussia Dortmund because they haven't been winning games. They've been drawing matches. But that can change very quickly. Leipzig, I think, will be in the conversation. And what I've seen from Leverkusen makes me think that they'll be there or they too. about to. Uh, I think Gladbach and Wolfsburg, once the fixtures get a bit more demanding, will drop off slightly. Um, Schalke of course we shouldn't forget about them they've been a massive surprise again I think it's uh, early for them uh, but you know David Wagner has been terrific in the short time he's been in charge and I think you've got to give credit to everyone there at the club, Jochen Schneider and company, for, for the for the work they have done to try to almost reinvent um, the, the the squad. But um, I, I would think it'll, it'll be Bayern by a fairly comfortable margin, not running away with it, but I think Bayern will um, be too good in the end. Now, in the Champions League front... Uh, I know that last season was very disappointing for all concerned um, uh, on the Sebener Straße to go out to Liverpool and the manner that they did, you know, after building that platform on the first leg to, to not really play well, to not really look as though they were good enough in that decisive second leg. Um, I, I think this time round, they have every chance because as I look at the other teams, as I look at Bayern's competition in, in, that, co- in that tournament, uh, I'm hard-pressed to say they are significantly worse than this team or this team. Now, Liverpool, again, uh, look as though they have the wherewithal to go far. You would think Manchester City likewise. Uh, and, of course, you're always talking about um, the, the big two in Spain. But I, I think uh, Bayern ought to believe that they can go far. And, you know, for many years, they were really sort of a semi-final team in the Champions League in the years following on from their victory at Wembley back in 2013. So I think that um, with the squad, I see no reason why they they can't compete at the very highest level. And of course, the Pokal is an element of of lottery about that. But, um, you know, Bayern always set those high standards for themselves. So I would expect them to be very much alive in all three competitions.
0: We're going to take a very quick break right now. And when we come back, we will have more. With our second half of our interview with Derek Ray. Welcome back. And now we return to the second half of our interview with Derek Ray. Now, there's been a big development in terms of television and broadcasting rights. Uh, I've gone into, for fans of me on the blog and on the podcast, they know that I'm a journalism major. And this is something that I take very uh, I take a very interesting light to, and of course I'm referring to the deal between ESPN and the Bundesliga for uh, the upcoming season to broadcast the league. Now I, in our previous discussion before the uh, interview got underway, I was asking you about Fox and how they performed and what your thoughts and opinions were on them. But you mentioned that you contribute more to the international feed than you do directly to Fox. And that's not something that most Americans, including myself, um, are aware of. So could you uh, shed some light on what the international feed is and how it works?
1: Yes, I'm delighted you've asked that question, because it does come up quite a lot. And The short answer is it's complicated. Um, But, you know, here's the situation. Um, Fox have been for the last few years the rights-holding broadcasters in the USA. Now, my voice um, will quite often pop up on Fox because I work for the Bundesliga's international feed. So what is an international feed? Well, most leagues, most top leagues around the world, and the Premier League certainly does this, provide for the rights-holding broadcasters an international commentary feed. And in this case, that all comes from Germany. And there's a team of broadcasters charged with commentating on the games. I'm one of of many as part of that team. You'll, you'll, You'll probably know most of the other names of the guys who do that on a a week to week basis. They're all great pros. They're all very enthusiastic about the Bundesliga. And so those commentaries end up on Fox a lot of the time. And, um, you know, if you didn't know any better, you would think that they were actually original Fox broadcasts. Fox, of course, do some of their own broadcasts. um, So that's where it gets even more complicated, differentiating between what's um, being done by Fox itself uh, and what is, uh, if you like, a, a pickup um, from the, the Bundesliga. So, um, so yeah, so I've actually never directly done a, a Bundesliga game for Fox. I've been well aware, of course, as somebody who lives in the USA, that my work is frequently on Fox, um, but at the same time as being on Fox, it's also on uh, multiple other broadcasters around the world, pretty much any uh, English-language channel who takes the Bundesliga We'll take the world fee. That's the case in the Middle East and Africa. That's the case in uh, Australia and New Zealand and um, sometimes in the UK market as well. Uh, just to name a few. So so that's how it all works. And, um, you know, obviously Fox have been the rights holders, but um, beginning next season won't be anymore. And it, it does give me a chance to say that uh, having gone through this myself as a broadcaster, I'm a freelancer nowadays, so I work at, across the board for a number of different entities, but it does give me the chance to say that my thoughts are always with colleagues when this sort of thing happens, because uh, you know, people have have uh, made their living doing one thing for a number of years, and they pin all their hopes on that company keeping the rights. So, when when rights change hands from one broadcasting station to another, that's the first thing I always think of because it happened to me at ESPN back in two thousand and nine when I lost what was my bread and butter, the Champions League, and had to move on to other projects. Happened uh, again twenty thirteen when I was working in Scotland. Uh, ESPN UK folded. And I moved over to BT Sport at that time. But there can be a lot of um, stress for, for anyone in the business. Um, these right cycles can can add to that. So, um, so that's the, maybe the unseen side of it all um, for people who are not in the business.
0: So I know you've had, as you just mentioned, you've worked previously with ESPN. And there's the idea of... Streaming versus linear television, and for those that at home are not aware of that term, linear television is just basically when you turn on cable. It's ESPN, ESPN Two, ESPN News, ESPN you Some uh, using them as an example versus ESPN Plus, the online streaming service that you can get on your phone, your laptop. Uh, video game consoles, et cetera. Uh, There's been, I've I've always held the opinion that I think ESPN should do a full-time soccer channel because with all of the broadcast rights that they hold, they would have more than enough content to be able to fill it. Uh, Do you think that streaming on ESPN Plus is a good fit specifically for this league? And do you think it's a good idea for ESPN as a whole to stick to streaming as opposed to developing a linear channel?
1: Well, the first thing I should probably say is uh, I'm not a business person, so I I would be the wrong person to ask about which model is better from a a business point of view. Um, What I could say as a viewer is that I think streaming is brilliant. I mean, this is me just talking as somebody who is frequently at home when I'm not in Germany. I'm at home here in Massachusetts and I'm trying to watch games. And I'm probably the wrong generation for scre- for streaming, really. I, th- I think you know, probably your generation, Jake, are more likely to be uh, uh, t- to be doing that to watch games. But I found it um, a-, a wonderful invention, and it's allowed me to to bounce between different channels and between different leagues. And so, you know, that is a, a big plus. Now, obviously, I-, I understand the argument too that a lot of people want these games to be on over-the-air TV because they. The idea is that by doing that, you get a wider projection, you get more people watching. But I think what what we can't really say at the moment is um, what the future holds and, and, and how people are going to be consuming games in the years ahead. I remember as far back as probably about 1998, I was always told by people, you know, claiming to be in the know then oh, one of these days you won't be watching games on, on TV at all. It'll all be on your computer. Nobody had invented iPads or or iPhones at that time so we couldn't even have, have visualized that so I think it changes with each generation and then again it changes subtly um year in year out I think um Obviously, the Bundesliga have, uh, have their own business reasons for, um, for choosing a particular broadcaster. And again, I know this, having been at the sharp end of it, having been with, with companies over the years who've had rights and then have lost rights, that sometimes it comes down to the best financial offer. Sometimes it comes down to the best overall package. And, uh, you know, some of the quotes I've read, um, I think do ring true that uh, there's no doubt about it. ESPN is a very big um, media sports player. And um, the Bundesliga, uh, you know, clearly want to to be associated with ESPN from that point of view. So um, uh, ESPN Plus is something that, you know, to go back to what you were saying, it, it's certainly at the moment not particularly expensive. And, um, and there's a lot of choice in terms of watching football matches there at the moment. And I think you could... Uh, you, you could spend a whole day just going from one game to another. So I think it's one of these things that, in time, we'll find out. And uh, I certainly hope that the international feed broadcasts are, are you know, readily available on ESPN Plus. I would imagine they would be, just as they have been on Fox, and um, and that the the viewers in the USA will continue to hear the uh, the, the fine broadcasters from the international feed who. I'm I'm very proud and, and happy to call my colleagues.
0: So I guess moving on to that, you did mention that you are a freelancer and that you do work for the International Feed. But do you think that there is a chance that you could go back to ESPN, of course, keeping in mind that there may be things you may not be able to disclose?
1: Uh, well, no, that, that there's nothing that I um, that, that that I can say to you honestly at the moment as a freelancer. There's nothing that uh, that I I know that I I can't share with you. And and all I can really tell you is that yeah, I am a freelance broadcaster, and um, and that's how I like to work. So you know, in the last <clears throat> two years since I left the UK, I was with BT Sports uh, among other people in in the UK. But since I moved back to the US, i S I've been lucky enough to work for ESPN for Fox on the, the world cup and the women's world cup and for NBC on the, the premier league. So, you know, probably what you would say, the three, um, mainline broadcasters of soccer in the USA, I've been able to bounce between the three of them, but as a freelancer, and as I say, that's my choice. A lot of people enjoy the security of being with one broadcaster and, um, with that comes exclusivity. That used to be something that was was part of my life when I was at ESPN in the old days. But I'm a freelancer nowadays, so I think as a freelancer, you recognise that um, companies are generally going to look after their staff people first, and that's how it should be. Um, but that uh, you know, you're always looking for opportunities that uh, that might fit your um, your skill set. So obviously, the Bundesliga is something for me that is not just work. It, it is a passion, and it, it is something from the heart. And it goes all the way back to um, to those student days in uh, in the, the the Hessen area, Nord Hessen, right by the border with what is is Thüringen nowadays. But in the old days, we used we used to just refer to it as the uh, East West border, the border between East and West Germany. Um, but um, no, I mean I, I would anticipate that um, uh, that I'll continue to work for the international feed and um, the guys who who uh, look after that in Kern. Are, are very nice to, to me in terms of, um, you know, allowing me to come and be part of the team for a spell, uh, you know, usually every few weeks and, and do a few games. And um, as I say, with, with a bit of luck, many of those matches will be available on, on ESPN come the new contract as they currently are on Fox.
0: We will return to the podcast right after this message. Moving on to our third Phase of this uh, of this interview, and it's gonna focus on football in the United States. And the reason why I wanted to ask these for you specifically is because I think you have a unique perspective coming from a very football dominant country in uh, overseas, in the UK and in Scotland, versus a very American football dominated country here so uh just a couple of i guess fun questions in terms of that uh what will happen first the american first world cup or england's second world cup
1: <laughs> oh what a question um it's funny if you'd asked me that uh five years ago i probably would have said uh usa's first world cup i think at the moment the trajectory england are on i think it would be dishonest to say that they don't have a better chance of winning the, their second World Cup before the, um, uh, the U.S. Um, claims its first. So I, I would say it's more likely that England will be crowned world champions again before the U.S. for the first time. That would be my honest answer.
0: You spent a lot of time calling the World Cup in France this summer, which saw the United States win their fourth World Cup what what was that experience like and what was it like watching those players and those performances i'll
1: tell you what it was really inspiring uh, one of my favorite tournaments i have to say and i've been lucky enough to 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 cover so many i've lost count of of how many major tournaments i've, I've done as a commentator uh, that was my third women's world cup my first one actually since 2003 uh, I did 99 and 03 uh, in the USA for ESPN and then the international feed, respectively. So it was a a, a really um, enjoyable time in France um, working for Fox Sports and, you know, having the perspective of, of being not quite inside the ropes, but very close to us all. And I think the access that you get at a Women's World Cup is a lot better than it is at a, a Men's World Cup. Uh, You you get to to see and learn a lot more. And I just found it a really enthralling tournament from start to finish. And it was one I was very keen to be part of and and lucky enough got my wish. And, um, you know, more power to the the U.S. women. I think they they do everything... um, you know, the right way. I think that the the players know their responsibilities as ambassadors, but also as personalities. I think it became pretty clear as the tournament went on that uh, they were the best team again. And one or two doubted them going into that Women's World Cup. I probably doubted them too. You know, I probably thought going into it, I thought there's at least a, a chance here that they might be dethroned. Uh, They might even go out early. Everyone was talking about France meeting the U.S. in the quarterfinal, as they did uh, in Paris. And of course, uh, the U.S. showed just how good they are. and, And France simply weren't up to the job of knocking out the the U S women's national team. So, um, you know, just so many great memories. And I was very lucky to work with an excellent co-commentator and Daniel Slayton, former U S women's international and, uh, and a great uh, production team, Carlos de Molina, my producer, Tomahach, our, our production assistant. And we, we really just covered that tournament almost like, um, old friends. Uh, and, and we had a lot of great laughs and conversations and, um, also uh, chats with the various players and coaches. Uh, and it really will go down, you know, when the time comes someday to, to pack it all in, which is many years from now, I hope. Um, that's one that I think I will look back on with a particular fondness, the 2019 FIFA Women's World Cup in France.
0: It was a truly fun tournament to watch, like outside of the whole inspirational aspect, because it definitely was. Being being an American, it was incredibly inspiring watching these these wonderful athletes go out and rise up to different political and sporting adversity and doubts and being able to uh, rise above and be able to show that they are better than than anybody else in the world. But moving to what happened when they came home, right? right. You look Across Europe and slowly but steadily, uh, women's football is becoming more and more important. You look at teams like PSG and Olympique Lyon, and teams in England like Chelsea and Arsenal and Manchester City, and they have these phenomenal women's teams. And even in terms of Germany, with uh, FC Bayern Munich, the Frauen team, they're Mm -hmm. wonderful, they're phenomenal. And in the United States, they were the uh, flag carrier for a long time for women's soccer with NWSL and then for some reason they're not able to bring out uh, a crowd which is really disappointing and I know that you mentioned previously that you aren't a businessman but what do you think of the product that NWSL brings forth and uh, how I guess what is a thought you may have on how to grow that league to what it should be
1: I don't think there's an easy answer because I think we have to recognize that when it comes to the women's game in particular, international soccer and club soccer are two quite different things. And I think it is an easy sell um, or an easier sell, at least, for somebody in terms of the international game. I think with club soccer, people sometimes need a little bit more time and, and a reason to go and support it and go and watch it. That's maybe not the ideal situation, but I think that is still the reality So it comes down to, you know, the product that you're selling and, uh, you know, who's taking part, who is involved. I still think that for a good number of uh, players, uh, women around the world, the the lure of the USA is very real. Uh, You know, I've got a a compatriot, um, Rachel Corsi who is from my home city of Aberdeen, actually went to the same school as me, although I'm a lot older than she is. <laughs> um, and, you know, she very much enjoys playing her, her soccer in the United States. And, you know, there are many other such examples. But I think there's no doubt that uh, Europe is fighting back and um, it's doing it on a number of different fronts. I think in England's England. They, they have the money and money does talk and, and that will be something that the NWSL has to be cognizant of. You know, England probably is an example of, of the, the most balanced situation with regard to the teams and, and maybe the league that's, um, that, that can overtake the NWSL if any league can. You know, in France, we always use the example of Olympique Lyonnais. Um, you know, and they certainly have had the money and, and, and the, they've had the the desire to to spend it on players for quite some time, but not necessarily the the quality of league from top to bottom. I think in Germany there is work to do and I think there's recognition of that fact. You know, Wolfsburg have been the, the standard setters there. Bayern, of course, up there in the discussion too. Um, but the crowds have not been good enough in Germany. I think everybody recognizes that and that extends to the... The, uh, the German women's national team as well, you know, been one of the top um, women's national teams for some time. But the fans haven't always responded in the way I think that uh, we would have wanted. So I think it's a fascinating time for, for w- the women's game. And I think it's only going to get bigger with each passing year. And, and every time there's a World Cup, it gives it another push. What's interesting to me is that the US keep managing to stay ahead of the curve. And uh, again, one or two people, myself included perhaps, wondered if they could actually do it this time and they succeeded but there'll be another test in four years time at that women's world cup and you know the euros uh, every um four years you know two years on from the the women's world cup you know i think they all they help the european countries because the standard is so high and, and getting better and better so um it, it's going to be an interesting um women's world cup next time around i'm just delighted that every team it seems is getting better that that's uh, where the priorities lie, and I think a number of associations around the world are starting to see that and uh, and understanding the importance of the women's game.
0: Moving from the women's game to the men's game, the the team that does a lot worse than than the women in the United States, uh, the Bundesliga is often seen as the one league in Europe to really go and develop young Americans and we'll get into uh, the Christian Pulisic issue in a little bit, but currently you have a number of very good young Americans across Germany. You've got uh, Werder Bremen's uh, Josh Sargent, you've got Schalke's uh, Weston McKinney, you've got Tyler Adams at Leipzig, and then of course you have players like Zach Steffen who are on loan into the Bundesliga. So uh, who do you think? Among them, or among anybody else that you've seen, who do you think ha- is the young American with the most, or with the highest potential to really take that next level and become the another big star for the U.S. men's national team or across the world?
1: Well, I, I always think it's maybe a bit dangerous to anoint stars, and I think that's something I've noticed in, in my now many years living in the USA. There is always a, a desire to. To find a star, you know, who could be the next great thing, and sometimes I always think it's enough just to be very good, you know, to be very competent at what you do. So, you know, those names you mentioned, I think they all are more than competent at what they do. Tyler Adams is probably the one I would give the edge to at the moment, based on what I've seen, because I mean, he um, arrived in Leipzig and looked as though he'd been playing there, you know, <laughs> every day of his life up to that point. That there seemed to be no transition period needed for him. Slightly different story with Josh, Josh Sargent. He needed a bit of time uh playing in, you know, down the divisions, uh, playing for the reserves, and then getting his chance in the first team now, more and more getting his chance. Weston McKenney, you know, didn't it take him that long and he wasn't necessarily talked about too much at the Knappen schmiede He was just another player, if you like, on the conveyor belt, but but developed and, and got his his place on the side um so i i think that of the three i, I probably would give the edge to adams i know he's injured at the moment but i think uh, he just looks very purposeful and, and as though he he's going to be around in the game at a, at a very good level for a long time whether any of them are uh, are going to be that that star that that, that that as i said many are desirous of um i'm not sure but i'm not sure that that, that necessarily as the be-all and end-all either. I mean, I, I always look at it that there aren't really that many stars, if you like, in world football that you know, people talk about world-class. But to me, you know, world-class, uh, there's maybe one player in every position in the world who is world-class. And um, uh, it, it's, it's difficult to belong to that club. Uh, but what I would say is I think that the Bundesliga, uh, and people will say to me, well, you would say this, wouldn't you, because you, know, you work in Germany a lot. But I would say that the Bundesliga is the place to go if you want to develop your talent. And I think there's a, a proven track record of that. And um, I think uh, anybody who is on the fence about that uh, just needs to look at those players who we've been talking about McKenney, now Sergeant Adams coming a little bit later um, about what they are doing and about how their game has developed in, you know, what, Many regard as the toughest environment of them all because it is difficult to succeed in Germany. You've got to be really good and you've got to be really dedicated, but you will get a chance, and that's not necessarily the case in other leagues.
0: I agree with you on the whole anointing stars front. Uh, poor Freddie, Adu. He, he, he I tried, know he tried so hard, and we anointed him. We, he was anointed the next. He was anointing the next Pele, the American Pele, and it did not really work out for him. And it's terrible that that happened, but. Someone that was seen in a a similar light as Freddie Adu in being able to take America to the next level is Christian Pulisic. Now, his story is not over yet, but it has taken its next phase and it's hit its first major road bump, as I'd like to say. It's not that his career is over, it's that it's hit its first major road bump. Uh, He moved for over 70 million euro, from Borussia Dortmund to Chelsea over the summer. Now Chelsea, of course, had a new had a new manager over the summer in Frank Lampard, and Pulisic's deal was made under Maurizio Sarri, who ended up leaving Chelsea. And now we see this interesting dynamic between Pulisic and Lampard, where Lampard has taken it upon himself to take the bevy of Chelsea's academy talent and bring it up through the ranks into the starting 11, whereas Christian Polisic has not been able to see as much time as any of the other phenomenal young players that Chelsea have. It kind of tough to watch as an American and, of course, as a Bundesliga fan because you hoped that he would go in and that he'd really break through that team. And yet he wasn't even on the roster of the 18 even not even in starting 11 but not even on the bench for Chelsea in their most recent Champions League game. So, of course with hindsight being 2020, do you believe that Christian Pulisic made the wrong move in choosing Chelsea as his destination back in January of this year?
1: Well, I'm not being a hypocrite because when this took place um, a few months ago, I did say uh, if I were choosing, if I were advising, um, that's not necessarily the club that I would suggest somebody like Christian Pulisic should go to. And it just seemed to me at the time that his star, his star had fallen a bit at Borussia Dortmund. Uh, he was injured quite a lot last season, which I think is fair to point out. He played a lot more in the last couple of months of the season, but he was not a first-choice Borussia Dortmund player last term. So he's going to Chelsea and, yes, for a lot of money. And you think, OK, there's the, uh, the transfer factor where, uh, you know, the, the fact that they can't sign players should help, should have helped from the point of view of getting into the, the, the team, the first team uh, in the first place. But there's always been a bit of a sort of a, a puzzling air around Chelsea and um, an air of instability, I would say, too. So, you know, if you're looking for a a surefire thing as a player, I'm not sure Chelsea is always the place uh, to be looking at. So, you know, he made that decision and, you know, time will tell if it's the right decision, if it was the right decision to to go to Chelsea. Um, I think what we can say is looking back, his development was greatly enhanced by his time at Borussia Dortmund. Um, No doubt about that at all. But then they ended up with players who they thought were just that little bit better than him. You know, so I understand that Americans really want him to play and they want him to succeed. But I think sometimes uh, there's a danger of wanting that too much. And I think that you have to realize that he's still young. Okay, you know, youth in football can be relative. And before you know it, you can go from being a young player to being, you know, decidedly middle aged. But, um, you know, he still has time on his side. And, uh, you know, we'll find out in due course if he's going to stay at Chelsea. Is he going to go somewhere else? Is he going to go on loan? I would maybe sort of caution all American viewers that it's a little bit dangerous. And I I, I think I see it an awful lot and have seen it an awful lot in my time living in the U.S. to be living vicariously through the American player all the time. I think you can always want him to do well. Should always want him to do well. To turn this around, I've never watched a game, much as I'm You know, very fanatical about Scotland and um, goodness knows we haven't qualified for a major tournament since 1998. I grew up uh, expecting Scotland to be at every major tournament because we were and then uh, we've had a drought since 1998. Um, So I'm very passionate about my country but I don't for example watch every Liverpool game um, because I know Andrew Robertson's going to be playing in it and I don't sort of live my football life through this one player and I, I think that you know I get it but The idea is that Pulisic is somehow different, that he is a very special talent. And goodness knows, I think he's a wonderful talent. And I really hope that he does well in the game. But I think you've got to sometimes just take a step back and and watch the games and ask yourself, you know, is he actually deserving of a place? And I haven't watched every Chelsea match this season, but what little I have seen, and talking to a lot of people who watch Chelsea much more than I do, you know, they'll tell you that it's not really a debate in England. It's not really a debate as to whether... Politics should be in the team or shouldn't. And Frank Lampard, you know, let there be no doubt at all about this. Frank Lampard is not uh, in the Chelsea job to show bias in favour of or against one nationality or another. It's quite simple. He wants to win matches for Chelsea. That's his only loyalty. He's not there as some sort of uh, de facto. Uh, you know, adjunct coach of um, of the FA or, or, or of England's national team. He's there to do his best for Chelsea. And he feels at the moment that Pulisic is not uh, a starting player for Chelsea. And I think you've got to respect that. And I think, as I say, by all means, enjoy Pulisic, you know, wish him well, but also be realistic.
0: Moving on to uh, the final two questions that I have for this, which would be about the domestic league And in general, um, soccer in America as a whole. uh, Do you think that the MLS, it's been trying to it's been trying to shed this idea of it being a retirement league, of it being a league that should be saved for the back burner or when. Uh, Good players are coming to the end of their career, but you've even seen great players choose to move to MLS in the prime of their career. See Joseph Martinez, see Carlos Vela. But then you also have these phenomenal players like Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who came in and absolutely dominates the league now in the end of his career. Do you think that one, do you think MLS has been able to shed that label? And two, Just from your experiences abroad, how is MLS seen Throughout the world,
1: I think MLS uh, continues with each passing year to get better and better. And I go back to the very first year of MLS when I was broadcasting games for the New England Revolution, 1996, when the league started. And, you know, it, it became pretty apparent not long after that that the league was on a bit of a shaky footing. I mean, there were genuine doubts as to the viability of the league, but they've been able to put all that in the past. And, you know, they got rid of the shootout, which was this gimmick early on to to separate teams so that they weren't drawn matches. It's outgrown all, all of those things. And and it's got better and the product gets better with each year. Now, you're always going to have this issue, I think, in the USA, uh, a country that is used to to watching the very best when it comes to American sports. that uh, you know, you have now competition on a Saturday and on a Sunday in the MLS season. So, you know, if you get up early to watch the Premier League or the Bundesliga uh, or watch Serie A later on a, a Saturday or a Sunday, you might not still be around to watch MLS. You might be. I mean, there, there presumably are quite a lot of people who do that, who have the, the staying power to, to be in front of a, a screen or a device for hours and hours and hours and hours. And hours. Um, but most people are going to make a choice. And I think that is what has maybe hurt MLS more than anything. I mean, I go back to, as I say, the early days of the league. And in those days, there wasn't the same competition, you know, and younger people probably don't realize that, that it wasn't as easy to access the Premier League um, back in in 1996, 97. You you often had to go to a a bar and pay a cover charge and, you know, somebody in a remote location is not going to do that. So uh, MLS, I think, had more of its sort of pride of place as the league of choice for people who wanted to watch soccer in the USA. So it's having to really fight, but I think it's doing that. And, uh, you know, it's never going to please everybody, the fact that you have so many teams going to the playoffs, you don't have promotion and relegation, as in European leagues. Some people are very much in favour of that. Others think that you should be true to the American sports traditions. Without getting into any of that, I think that what we do have to say is that the American landscape, the soccer landscape, is better for the fact that we do have a top-flight league in the country it's not perfect. It's not, you know, run the way I would want it to be run if I were, uh, in charge of it. Heaven help us. Um, you know, I, I would probably want it to be more along the lines of a European league, but it's what we've got. And, you know, I think that rather than just ignore it completely, I think that even those of us who obviously have a preference for, uh, one European league or another should keep a weather eye on what's happening in MLS. And, uh, As I say, it it helps to have it rather than not having a a league at all, which would be a horrible situation.
0: Lastly, uh, there's always been this talk about whether or not soccer in the United States will ever become a major sport. My idea is that it already is, but in the United States, we often use the idea of four major sports, being the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NHL, and the NBA. Do you ever think that soccer will be able to work its way up to dethroning any of those four? Or do you think that any attempt to try and do such a thing without a world-class national league like the MLS is just a... feudal idea i think
1: it could really only happen if we were in a situation where the premier league for whatever reason hit bad times la liga hit bad times the bundesliga hit bad times. you know what, what, where i'm driving at when i say that because of course what differentiates the nfl major league baseball the nba the nhl from their counterparts around the world if they even really have any counterparts is that we're talking about the best of the best and MLS, with the best world in the world, is not the best of the best. It's a North American league. Um, it's doing its absolute best, I think, at the moment. Um, but it's not the, the very best league in the world. And it's a long way from being that. And I don't know that we, at the moment, talking on this day in October 2019, I don't know if we can actually visualize a day when that will be the case. But that's what it might take, because I think for people who um, are not as fanatical about the sport as we are, they're just looking at it and thinking, yeah, well, it, it's not the best of the best. So how can we put it up there with the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball and the NHL, which represent the gold standard, really, in those respective sports? So that is the challenge. But um, what I would say to, to, to anyone you know listening who is a fan, and presumably if you are listening to this, you're a big, big fan of the sport, is that, what we love about the football world is that it's our world, and we don't have to worry too much about what somebody from from a different sports background really thinks. Yeah, it would be nice to get them on, on board and get them more interested in it, but I think it grows organically. And I think I've certainly seen that in all the years I've been living in the USA, uh, most of my adult life, really. Um, You know, I can remember what it was like before the 1994 World Cup when I was one of the press officers for the organizing committee at that tournament. And, you know, educating journalists was a big part of the job because most of the sports journalists just did not have a clue about the sport at all and genuinely needed to be educated about what what this was. So we've come an awful long way from that. And it's encouraging to see younger people getting into the media who are far more open to it, far more interested in it. So I think that the only way is up. But I think at the same time, we have to be a bit realistic and a bit patient because I'm not sure that, that certainly in my lifetime, we're going to arrive at a situation where Uh, We talk about a big five in terms of sports. I think that soccer will always exist in a slight vacuum, but maybe that's for the best. And maybe that's where all this to go back to one of your earlier questions about streaming. Maybe that's where all this comes in, because, um, you know, soccer, football, as I would normally call it, um, you know, fans of the sport uh, always have an awful lot in common. There's an international language, and we all sort of belong together, and we can all have our allegiance, allegiances and our teams and things that we like, but and things that we dislike, and we can disagree on certain things. But we're all part of this world community, and um, I think that's what we should be aiming for: is is making the USA even more, and it's already an important part, but even more part of the world football community, and and that to me is is the the attainable goal rather than um visualizing a, a, a situation of a, of a big five um I, I think we're some way off that
0: well that wraps up this interview uh with derek ray thank you very much for coming on you who uh you set the standard for the rest of the interviews that we may end up doing uh, on this podcast so again i just want to thank you very much for taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule and coming on
1: Oh, my pleasure. And thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it.
0: For everybody out there, if you uh, if you liked this interview a lot, please be sure to like us, rate us, subscribe to us. You can follow Derek Ray on Twitter at Raycom with two Ms. You can follow me on Twitter at Jefferson Fenner. And we will see you next time when we return with a full episode of the podcast. Uh, so until then, I'll to Zane.